Thank you for praying, men, again. Um, Second Corinthians, Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians, chapter number three. You know, it's ought to, like Jesus said of the, the temple of God, he said this is a, should be a house of prayer, amen? And we should be able to pray here, I'm glad we do, and that's why we do pray, is we should, we should, we should, uh, should, and, um, should be part of the service, should be part of what we have together, should be spent in prayer, and I'm glad we still have a, still do that, and so, thank you for praying tonight. Second Corinthians chapter 3. How many of you had a long day? Anybody? <laughs> long day? I caught some of you yawning coming in today. I know it was a long day. Early morning. Maybe it was an early morning for some of you. So how about this? How about you stand up, all right? And, uh, <laughs> okay, you're sitting down for a little while. How about you all stand up and take your Bibles, hold them up there, Okay. And let's read all of 2 Corinthians this evening. <laughs> I'm just joking. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And um, let's start with um, verse number 7. Or excuse me, verse number 6. Now it says here, Who hath also made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death written in engraven stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceeding glory. For even when, or excuse me, for even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect, but by reason of the glory that excelleth. Are you following what he's saying here? He's talking about two different covenants here, two different testaments, a New Testament and an Old Testament, a new ministration and an old ministration, the law, the spirit. And he is saying they both had glory, an aspect of glory. But this new covenant far exceeds and excels the old Testament. And he's going to explain that. We're going to see that tonight. He says in verse number 11, For if that which was done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, or you might say boldness. He said we're very bold in what we're saying here. We don't, we don't beat around the bush here. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, but their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall, be, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Father... We're thankful for the ministry of the new covenant. We pray that, Father, we would see this glorious gospel tonight in its true form and believe it 
as Paul did. It gave him hope, it gave him life, it gave him a boldness to preach the word. It let him see the great glories that are possessed in it and it made him want to share it with others. I pray as we study our passage tonight that, Lord, when we leave here, we'll have a greater zeal and a boldness and a desire to share the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we approach this vital context, this vital text tonight on the gospel, I think it's important that all of us remember that Jesus Christ is more glorious than all things considered. That's not a PBS uh, thing there, just uh, uh, for you, but it, he is. He is, consider all things, consider everything. He is the most glorious of them all. Hebrews 13, 21 makes this declaration. Make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is the most glorious person, object, thing, and spectacle that this world has ever seen. We've never beheld such a sweeter one than this. The songwriter wrote, Jesus is the sweetest name I know. And I, I think she hit the nail on the head. He's wonderful. He's glorious. He's magnificent. He's powerful. He's good. He's majestic. He's holy. He's perfect. He's lovely. He's peaceful. He's helpful. He's kind. He's generous. And any other positive affirmation that you would like to ascribe to our Lord and Savior Jesus, he is that to the nth degree. He is glorious. Glorious in splendor. But the way in which we know and understand and come to believe who Jesus is, is through a message in which we have come to know as the gospel. The gospel. The gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Gospel means good news. And the way we know this glorious Jesus is that the gospel has taught us that Jesus died for our sins. He shed his blood for our sins and was buried and he rose again the third day. And none of us, I believe, tonight would deny as Christians that to have a full understanding of who Jesus is, we need to have a full understanding of what the gospel is. And that the gospel is unveiled for us in the New Testament. The gospel is fully unveiled for us in the New Testament. It, was some, it is there in the Old. In fact, it's everywhere in the Old. It starts in Genesis and goes all the way to the book of Malachi. But as we read tonight towards the end of our reading in verse number 15, or excuse me, in verse number 14, it says, speaking of the Jewish people as a nation, he says that there is a veil untaken away from them in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away with in Christ. Understand tonight that when we speak of Old and New Testament, we're not necessarily saying that we have Old and New Testament. We're not necessarily saying we've got an Old Testament Bible and a New Testament Bible, okay? Our minds, because of Bibles and because of the printing of the Scriptures, we're very familiar with the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament. And so that's the way our mind thinks. But when we're talking here in the, these terms of Old Testament, New Testament, and things of these nature, we're not talking in Bible printing terms. Does that make sense? 
We're not talking in that way. We're talking about an old covenant. We're talking about a new covenant. An old covenant that was established with Moses and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai through the law. That was the old covenant. There's many covenants in the Bible. There's a Noahic covenant. We're still underneath that. We're still underneath the covenant that God established to Noah. God told Noah that he would not destroy the world, the whole entire world, with a flood anymore. And God has held to that promise ever since then. God established a covenant with Abraham. God established a covenant with David. God established a covenant with a priest by the name of Eliezer. Or excuse me, by, um, by, he established a covenant with some of the priesthood. There are many covenants in the word of God. But the covenant that we're talking about tonight, the two specifically, are the covenant of the old covenant, the one that God established with Moses, and the new covenant that God revealed to us, not in the New Testament, but actually he revealed to us in the book of Jeremiah, chapter number 31. So these things are already given to us in our Old Testament. Does that make sense? Our Old Testament. Because understand that whenever the New Testament books were being written, as we know them as called New Testament books, they did not have them bound in this kind of format. They might have had one here and one there and one in Crete and one over in Jerusalem and maybe another at Rome, but they didn't have them all together to view them all, all in one place. But what they did have is they had the Old Testament scriptures, Genesis to Malachi. And even then, it would have been very difficult for any of us, any of us, to have all of those books in one place. Understand, those books were not this small. <laughs> They're written on parchment papers. They were written on animal skins, rolls, and scrolls. And you would have to be very rich to possess all of them in one place. So just a little clarification there with this old and new covenant. Let's try to separate these things and understand that we're not talking about a printed Bible, old covenant, new covenant, Old Testament, New Testament. We're talking about the old covenant of the law and the new covenant of the Spirit of God and grace in Jesus Christ. Where God literally not has given to us a law written on stones, but a law that has been written upon our hearts, a wonderful thing that God has promised to us. But these things are glorious. Even the Old Testament, Moses' law, was very glorious, very glorious. I'll speak to that in just a moment. But something is even greater of glory. Second Thessalonians 2.14 says, Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel ushers in the glory of God. And so our purpose tonight is to see this dramatic impact of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and how it is much more glorious, but also, but also, an application, as we'll see here this evening, is to let that impact our lives and to preach this message to others. Number one, I want us to see this. I read to you the Pauls in the text. Really, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 16 is a parenthesis. Paul has began a discussion back in 2 Corinthians chapter number 12 about the propagation of the gospel, the preaching of the word of God, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he'll do that all the way through 2 Corinthians chapter number 6. 
I preached through 2 Corinthians some time ago. I think it was back in 2018, maybe 19, around in that era. I went back over those notes again and everything. This is not a message from that series, uh, but went over back over those notes and just kind of refreshing my memory on some of those things. But uh, this is a totally different message because it's got a, I've got a totally different point where we're going with this this evening. And the, what we're seeing here tonight is this little pause in the text as given to us in order that we might understand what is the purpose of Paul's whole entire argument here. And one of the things that he's bringing about, and I hope you maybe picked up the word, I tried to emphasize it some, is that word ministration. Ministration. Did you notice that word there? Ministration. Ministration. He says it four different times. In fact, he uses it five times in in 2 Corinthians. But the word ministration means to aid. It means to service. It means to give attendance to. It is spoken of in Luke one twenty three, whenever Zacharias was serving in the temple and he offered incense to God. And it says, and it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. So this word ministration means that service, serving. It means to give service to something. Paul is paused here and he is considering for us the ministration the attendance, the help, the aid, if you will, that the Old Testament gave and what the New Testament gives. Uh, What is the ministration of the old and what is the ministration of the new? We'll see that this evening. Paul, I believe, through the Holy Spirit of God, understood that he would have both Jewish readers and Judaizers and Jewish proselytes reading his letters too. And he wanted them to know and to understand that the Jews have not been forgotten in the gospel. Uh, There was always this imbalance sometimes. People would think that maybe the Gentiles had been forgotten or that the Jews had been forgotten. But the gospel is, is one and for all. It is for everybody, praise God. It's not for one group or for one race or for one people or one kind, but the gospel is universal. It's to everyone, to all that will believe, as it says, right? It is to everyone. And so Paul's making this point. He's letting them see that both covenants have a very real purpose. Now take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 21. Galatians 3.21. Hold your place in 2 Corinthians. We'll be turning back to it. But turn, if you will, to Galatians 3.21 this evening. I hope you'll just bear with me here a moment as I kind of review some of these things. Maybe you remember these from a few years ago. (laughs) What is the purpose of the Old Testament? What is the purpose of the Old Testament? Again, I don't mean Old Testament... Genesis to Malachi, okay, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the law. What was one of the purposes? Well, the, obviously Paul does not take the time to discuss every single point of what is the purpose of the Old Testament. He just pulls out some of the points, and that's all I'll do also. But I want to start positively before we jump into our text and show this to you here tonight in Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 21. One of the purposes, and I believe this is very important for us all to understand because this will be the very first point of what is the purpose of the New Testament also. The purpose of the Old Covenant, as it's stated here in Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 21, is and was to give life. Notice what it says in Galatians 3.21, the Bible's plain. He says, is the law then against the promises of the God? God forbid. For if there had been a law which could have given life, 
Verily, righteousness should have been by the law. Paul doesn't make any qualms about it. He says, if there was a perfectness, if there was something that was great, that was going to save anybody, it was this thing that God had given to us. And praise God, it was the Word of God. and is the Word of God. Amen? It's perfect. Romans chapter 7 and verse number 10 says this, And the commandment, that is the law, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, which was ordained to life. That was why it was given. Given to, for life. Leviticus even states that plainly in the law itself. So it says, Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. Ezekiel says the same thing. God reinstituting the, the, uh, the promises with them in the book of Ezekiel. After they had already left into captivity, the Bible says this, I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. Ezekiel says it, Leviticus says it, Galatians says it, Romans says it, the Bible says it all, that the law was given for the purpose of life. And in fact, whenever you go through the promises of God in the Old Covenant, in Moses' law, you'll find that if the people would have listened to God, have you ever read the blessings? It is amazing. It is amazing what the nation of Israel would have been if they would have listened to God. It is absolutely amazing. When they did just barely listen to God sometimes, God blessed them. But if they were to listen to God to the full extent, the blessings would have come down upon them more than we could ever imagine or understand. But Ezekiel tells us in chapter 22 and also in chapter number 23 that this would not be the case at all. They would not listen to him. They would not obey his laws. They would not do what he has said. Therefore, the law would serve in its other capacity. It would serve in its other capacity. And that capacity, which God designed for the law to do, is that it says in verse number 7, but if the ministration of death, death. A famous statement in the Old Covenant is this, they shall be cut off. That's mentioned over 30 different times in the Old Covenant. One of the purposes, if you will, if you want to think about it like that, is this, is that God was establishing in his Old Covenant the punishment of people by the means of death. Not every law that was broken, of course, was punishable by death. We know this. We understand this. But this is a main feature of the law that had not been revealed by God until this very moment. And I don't mention spiritual death here. I don't mention death. Uh, I don't mention uh, this kind of death here in spiritual mindedness or anything. I'm just speaking of literally dying. Moses' law brought attention to the fact that if people lived this way, they would be cut off. They would die. And they will die. And they should die. It was Moses' law. We're even told this in the New Testament, 
in our New Testaments. Again, I'm not, it, it can be confusing for me to kind of separate these things, all right? But in our New Testaments, in our Bibles in James chapter number 2, we're reminded of this, and Jesus even lets us know this, that the law was not something that was just to be an outward thing, but it was also something that was to be what? An inward thing. Jesus reminded us of this. The law, even in the Deuteronomy, reminds them of that. It is of the heart we see. But James 2 says this. It says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. So you say, well, I've never, I've never sinned a sin, a, a venial sin, you know, uh, use that word. I've never, used, I've never sinned a sin that's a, a mortal sin, a sin that is so bad and wicked that I deserve to die, all right? I've never, I've never murdered anybody. I've never, you know, you know, had some kind of weird relationship with uh, an in-law or something like that. I've never done anything like that, okay? I've never done those kind of things, okay? I, that, some of those things I read, and I'm like, ooh, that's disgusting. I would never do something like that. Come on. But, Paul, but James says this, if you offend in one point of law, you've broken all the law. You've offend, you, he's guilty of all. Why is that? Why is this ministration of death not just on the idolater, but also on the covetous? It's because one law overarchs all the laws. Deuteronomy 6.5 And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. That is the commonality of sin, my friend. That sin brings death because every sin is a direct attack against God because it all points back to this one fact. We did not love the Lord. Whenever you lie, you break the law just as much as a man that murders. You prove, and I prove, that we don't love God as we should and therefore we're as bad, if not worse, than an idolater, if you will. Because we've broken the law of thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Therefore, the punishment is a ministration of death. But he goes on to say in verse number 9, He look here in verse number 9, he says, For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, the law served as a purpose to give life, but that was changed because of sin, but it also served as a, as a purpose to administer death but it also serves as a purpose for condemnation the ministry of the law was to condemnation not to life in our case because we're all sinners you see the law could not save us because we cannot keep it right that's why it can't save us we cannot keep it therefore what does the law do it condemns us it condemns us It is there to show us we are sinners. It is there to show us that we possess no amount of righteousness within us. That is why he gave all those people all the sacrifices that he gave to them. To show them that they had a picture of what he was telling them in the law. That this is condemnation. And instead of me taking my judgment and wrath out upon you. That I will allow for the covering of these animals in their blood. So that judgment will not pass upon you. It was an atonement. But there was a greater atonement coming. But listen to what it says in Galatians 3.10. For as many are of the works of the law, 
are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. So the law, it condemns. The law brings death. The law kills. He says that in verse 6. It says at the, end of the, at the end of the verse, but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. The law kills. Deuteronomy 27, 26 says, Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them. And all the people shall say, Amen. I didn't hear any amens. Uh, but, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, here is, he's speaking up. Cursed be everyone that does not do everything that's in the law of God. And everybody was supposed to say, amen. That's what they were supposed to say. <laughs> and that was the case. Paul confirms this in the New Testament by saying in Romans 7, 9, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And I died. The law kills. And the last thing I want to notice about the law is this. Is that the law, though it kills, though the law condemns, though the law brought death, even though its original purpose was to bring life, the law still is glorious. It is still glorious. Listen to what he says in our text here. He tells us that it is glorious. He says that, but if the ministration of death and engraving, written and engraving on stones was glorious. It was glorious. It was so glorious that he makes the point here that it was so glorious that whenever Moses came down off the Mount Sinai after he'd been talking with God, that his face was shining. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine walking into the building at night and your face was like a light bulb? I mean, somebody says, oh, they're, they're just, there's a beaming light. I mean, look at them. They're just beaming. I mean, but, but, but Moses was literally beaming. I mean, I mean, it was like he got cooked up to GE or something like that. I mean, PEC plugged him in. I mean, the guy, he was lit, lit, lit up like a Christmas light. Not the colored ones either, right? He was lit up. And the law revealed the glory of God in a number of ways. Not just Moses' face, but think back to, our, uh, our, think back to your Old Testament. Think back to the book of Exodus. What happened on that day? Well, there was lightnings and there was thunderings. And the Bible says there was a loud trumpet. I mean, it was a, there were some amazing things happening. And God himself even came down and he spoke to the people of God. And they said to Moses, let not God speak to us lest we die. Uh, you know? You go up to the mount and talk to God, okay? And come back and we'll get the message from you, okay? We don't want to talk to God. It's too much on us. The glory was amazing. I mean, the Bible says that the mountain was surrounded with fire. Can you imagine walking up the mountain as Moses and you're looking at, that's a wildfire up there, all right? You know, only crazy, only crazy firemen walk into those kinds of things, you know what I mean? I, I don't do stuff like that, okay? But Moses said, you know what? God's up there, and that's where I'm going. The glory of God. It was amazing. It was shining. It was bright. It was everywhere. The Old Testament had an amount of glory that was with it. But the illustration is obvious, I believe, that Moses' face did not stay lit like that his whole entire life. His whole entire life, he did not walk around, and it was bright as the sun, okay? It would fade away. It would kind of go away. And so, 
the law served to show us something greater. The Paul, Paul even states it here. He says that the law will be done away with. The law will be abolished. The point is that the glory of the law, like the glory of Moses that once shone on his face, would be done away with. It would stop being so glorious. Because there would come a greater manifestation of God's glory in the form of his own dear son. A greater manifestation of God's glory was going to come, not in Moses, not in the law, but in Jesus. So secondly, we see the ministry of Christ, the ministry of the New Testament. And the New Testament points us back to what we've been seeing. What was the New Testament? What's the ministration of the New Testament? Well, it's life. I already told you that, all right? If you were taking a multiple choice test, you should have been able to answer that one, all right? It was life. That's the reason it is. The New Testament, the New Covenant brought life. Turn if your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter number 31 in verse number 34. 31 in verse number 31. Chapter 31, 31. I'll get it out in a minute. Jeremiah 31, 31. Just hold your place there for a moment. I'll get there in a second. But it was there for life. Jesus says, For as the Father raises up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. Jesus came for the purpose that he might have, that we might have life and have it what? More. Anybody know the next word? What? Abundantly. That's the reason God, Jesus came, to give us life. That's the reason of the new covenant, the new ministration. It says it in verse number 6. It says, the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. That's what it is there for. John 14, 6, Jesus says, what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's all over the scriptures. It's everywhere. You can find it anywhere you look. It seems like in the book of John. Jesus came to give life. That's the purpose of the new ministration. Secondly, we see this. Another purpose is to reveal glory. He says that in verse number 10. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect, but by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which was done away was glorious, much more that remaineth is what? Glorious. He says, man, I'm telling you right now, if the old law that was written on stones that was served for the purpose of death Okay, was glorious. If a tombstone was glorious, amen, then how much more glorious is the resurrected Christ? I mean, it's, 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 it's like somebody that lived, and I know this is very fictitious, but I couldn't think of it any other way, but it's like somebody that lived on a planet that all they had was the moon for their light. Can you imagine just all they had, all their life, all it was was the moon. That's all they had. And then one day, uh, they, they, they looked at that moon and, it was in, and its brightness. Oh, man, this moon is a bright moon. Oh, it's a blue moon or it's a harvest moon or it's a golden moon or whatever moon they come out. It's a full moon tonight. It's a super moon or whatever. I, I've never heard so many different kinds of moons in my life for the last couple of years. I mean, they all, they're making up all kinds of names for moons. I don't know. Maybe that's a, a meteorological thing that they came up with years ago. and They're just now introducing it to us. I don't know. But uh, the point being is this. I mean, you're, you're, it's all you're talking about. Look at the moon, the moon, the moon, blah, blah, blah. Okay, imagine you take that person and transport them to earth. And do they get here at night and they see a moon? They say, oh, wow, <laughs> similar place. They go to bed and they wake up and the next morning they see something they ain't never seen before. It blows their minds. I mean, 
they're, they're kind of freaking out a little bit, like, what in the world is happening here? Something's wrong. Something's messed up. And they look up in the sky, and they can't even look at that thing. They're like, what in the world is that thing? And they said, that's called the sun. They said, well, we can actually see now. We could only really see when it was a really big moon, a full moon. When it was that little crescent thing, we really couldn't see that very well. But now we can see everywhere. Even when it's cloudy, we can still see outside. It's an amazing thing. Then they find out that the moon actually receives its light from the sun. (laughs) Now their mind is really blown. And they're thinking to themselves, wow, what in the world is going on here? This is an amazing thing. The sun is much more glorious than the moon. And the new covenant is much more glorious by far than the old. As I said earlier, turn to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah already predicted this by the Holy Spirit of God giving him these things. For he says in Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That's important right there because what he's doing there is establishing that there will no longer be a divided nation, but a nation that's come together as one. Israel and Judah. Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them from the hand, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. See, what is he talking about right there? He's talking about the law of Moses. Not talking about Abraham. Not talking about David. He's talking about when he brought them out of Egypt, which my covenant they break. Although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. The purpose of that is not saying that that the ministry of teaching will be done with one day. The purpose of that is just to simply state for us that here he's telling us that, that they won't have to be able to say, know the Lord. For the Bible says, for they shall all know me. And we'll get to that in a moment. From the least of them or the greatest of them, saying the Lord. And here is very important. And here is part of the new covenant also. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. No more. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter number 3 in verse number 10. It says there, for even that which was glorious had no glory in this respect. What respect? In the respect that I just read to you. The new covenant produces and serves in this manner that it forgives iniquity and it never remember, it doesn't remember sin anymore. Because why? Because it serves us in the ministry of Jesus Christ our Lord that died for our sins and rose again the third day, that has shed his blood for your sin and for my sin. A much more glorious day than we could ever even imagine in our own hearts and minds. But it's not done yet. The ministry of the new covenant is this, life, glory, thirdly, is hope. He says that in verse 12, for when he says, see and then we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. The ministry or the ministration of righteousness gives hope. There's not a lot of hope when all you have is death to look forward to, killing condemnation there's not a lot of hope in that POWs have been that were have been saved and rescued many times have given that testimony that very same testimony the difference between them and the ones that did not make it was hope the ones that made it always believed 
that there was somebody coming for them. Those that gave up hope soon, quickly, became famished and perhaps even passed away. Paul says, we are looking to this greater glory. We are waiting in great anticipation for a coming day. When, as he says in 1 Corinthians, when this mortal shall put on immortality, right? When this temporary is going to become eternal. This new covenant is greater in this manner, in this respect. The old covenant was there to offer us sacrifices to cover sins, but those sacrifices, no matter how many there were, could never full-fledged, give full-fledged forgiveness of sins. Hebrews says it plainly, for the law, having a shadow of good things to come, not the very image of the things, could never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. But what did the ministration of righteousness of Jesus Christ do for us? It makes us stand perfect and whole and complete before God. And this is what's kind of ironic about the whole thing, too, when you consider it. Go back to what I said earlier about the Old Testament. About what was his original purpose? To give life? Do you think that God was going to renege on his promise? What did Jesus do when he lived upon the face of the earth? He kept every single law there was. Every bit of it. God doesn't renege on his promise. God didn't go, well, I guess that one didn't work. He said, no, 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 no. They can't do it, but I know somebody that can. Praise God. Amen. And I'll send him down. His name is my son, Jesus Christ. And he'll follow it to the jot and to the tittle. Every bit of it. And he did. And because he did, he has now given to us his, what? Righteousness. Because he followed the law and died for our sins and our atonement and our place. Now we have the righteousness of Christ that have believed upon Jesus Christ our Lord. And we have a hope. My hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest, sweetest frame, but holy rest on Jesus' name. Free from the law, oh happy condition, Jesus has blessed us and there is now remission. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, Christ hath redeemed us once for all. Once for all, oh brother, receive it. Once for all, oh sinner, believe it. We are saved by hope, my friend. And hope, what? Maketh not ashamed. Salvation. Now I'm working to this point here because he says in verse number 16, Nevertheless, he's talking about national Israel here. He's talking about their hearts. Because he says that in verse 15. He says, but even unto this day, when Moses is well read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. The last thing that we see here that the new covenant produces is salvation. But what struck me about this verse here tonight is this. In this closing section, that it not only produces within us a salvation... But there is a future glory and salvation that still exists. We have not seen the fullness of the gospel, my friend. We haven't seen it. The fullness of the gospel is when national Israel will then proclaim Jesus Christ as their Messiah and King. 
as their Lord and Savior. They are still an antichrist nation. They are still a nation as a whole, national Israel is, that hates the Lord and is their Savior and rejects Him as God and as King. The Old Testament, though, they keep going back to it and they keep trying to look into it and keep trying to remind themselves and keep trying to follow the laws. And, and, and sometimes you see those Orthodox Jews and they've got the locks down the side of them. They, some of them even have the, 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 little, uh, the little testaments on their hands and on, their, and on the little boxes on their foreheads. They've got their phylacteries that, they, that they're walking around with. And, 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 they're doing, and, a lot of, and some of them are doing their best, the Orthodox ones, and they're trying their best to, to to do what is said within the law in some ways. But you find here the Bible says it very plainly. They're doing all these things, but yet the veil is untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament. Which veil is done away in Christ? Oh, how they would be able to see the Jewish nation, Christ, all over the place in their Old Old Testament laws if they would just but believe upon Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But there's coming a day. When the most Jesus-hating crowd out there will also have their hearts broken too. That, listen to me, that is the power of the New Testament, my friend. That the people, the nation that killed their king and hated him will turn to him and believe upon him. Have you talked to a Jew lately about the Lord Jesus Christ or tried to? It's not an easy thing to do. You might as well forget going to Romans. Okay? You might as well forget going over to Galatians. Okay? They ain't going to listen to it. You better find some verses in Isaiah. If you really want to get technical, you better find some verses that are found there in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers and Deuteronomy, the Torah. You better find Jesus there because he's there. He's all over the place. And show to them the scriptures. Open them to them and show them if you can, if they will listen. And as they begin to listen, and as they begin to hear, and as they begin to hear, and I'm not talking about a national, but I'm talking about a personal level here, an individual person here. As they begin to hear, as they begin to listen, then you perhaps can go over to your New Testament. Then you can open up some things and begin to show some similarities, begin to show some things within the Word of God and say, look what it says here, and look what it says over here. Look what it says in the old, look what it says in the new. Get them thinking. But I'm talking about national Israel, the country, the people, the Jews. Jeremiah chapter number 31, verse number 35. This goes so well in what Paul is saying here. Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day and the ordinance of the moon of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me 
forever. Did you catch that? He said, if you can stop the sun and stop the moon, if you can stop the waves of the sea from roaring, he said, then and only then will the nation of Israel cease to exist. I ain't known anybody that can stop the moon, stop the sun. And if you roll up to Galveston tonight, guess what? The waves will still be rolling. That means the nation of Israel still exists, my friend. They're still around. Therefore, I can ask us all but this one thing. Can we not see the dramatic impact that the gospel has on this world? Can we not see that the power the New Testament has upon people, the power that it will have upon Israel? Do you and I have a hope that is resting in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation? The New Testament is here to serve. It serves to us hope, glory, salvation, and life. The Old Testament though it was made to give life, now produces within us death and condemnation. For the Jewish nation, they read the law, but they don't see, the Je- they don't see Jesus. That's how, but one day they will, through the gospel. The question you have to ask yourself is this, is what am I doing to share this gospel? What am I doing to share the gospel of Jesus Christ? If it's so powerful, it's, if, if it's so good, it, I mean, it's so glorious, it's so amazing, it's supposed so, so spectacular, what am I doing to share God's good news? It's so powerful that it's going to save a whole entire nation one day? Yeah, that's what the God says. Do we realize what we possess in the gospel? The power of the word of God in Jesus Christ in the gospel of the Lord? Friend, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. May God help us to give the gospel. Give the gospel to this lost and needy world. And by God's grace, may we do so for his glory and for his honor. Father, we're thankful.